Well, good morning, everybody. Um, I expect a number of you were watching the uh, royal wedding on television yesterday. Uh, It was a great occasion, wasn't it? Uh, There were a couple of things that struck me about it. Um, One was that they had an Afro-American preacher. And what a dynamic fellow he was. Uh, He preached with great power, I thought. But um, he also spoke from the Song of Solomon, which, of course, is a text that the ladies in this church have been uh, getting familiar with. Um, But one one thing in particular I noticed was that he was brave enough to take the pulpit with an iPad rather than notes. I would never have been brave enough to do that in front of the Queen. I mean, imagine if you'd run out of battery halfway through. That would be pretty awful, wouldn't it? Anyway, I've got paper. I'm not going to run out of battery. And uh, so let's pray. Yes, well, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for a living word. And we have gathered to hear from you this morning. We thank you for this great passage and pray that you would open our hearts to understand it and to obey it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as always, won't you please keep the Bible open and have the bulletin uh, open with the outline at the same time. I think that will help you to understand where we're going. A couple of years ago, um, the daughter of a good friend of mine died rather suddenly in her early 20s. When we received the news, I wrote to him to say how very sorry we were to hear of his loss and to assure him of our love and prayers. And uh, in his reply to me, he said this, and I quote, Her death was totally unexpected and is as yet unexplained. She had been so upbeat, was enjoying her work and life generally. We'd never seen her happier or more positive, which makes her loss all the more tragic. And uh, then he wrote these words. My prayer is that Sarah is now with the Lord and that our hope in the gospel and the certainty of God's promises will give us comfort and encouragement. Now, I start with that because um, it highlights the tension that sooner or later every single Christian has to deal with. Because, yes, on the one hand, God has given us the most amazing promises. Uh, Sins forgiven, uh, conscience cleansed, access to God in prayer, eternal life, and more besides. But you see, the context in which we hold on to these promises is one in which sin and death often seem to be the greater reality. The brokenness that we see all around us every day, uh, our own personal failures, and the death of friends and loved ones, well, these things are like a daily bombardment that sometimes threatens to undermine our faith in God and our confidence in his word. Now, Romans chapter 8 is designed to help us persevere through that daily bombardment without losing sight of who we are or where we're going. Now, the way that Paul does this in Romans 8 is to remind us of certain things that God has done. And I want to say up front that these things are always true for all Christians all the time. 
irrespective of our personal circumstances and irrespective of how we might be feeling. So last week we saw that every Christian can be absolutely confident that God's verdict on his life has already been decided in advance. We won't actually hear it declared from the throne of heaven until the last day, but the Christian knows, even now while he lives, that on that day the verdict he hears will be no condemnation. You see, for much of his life he might have been a liar, a murderer, an adulterer, or a thief. And his track record proves that God's condemnation is absolutely what he deserves. But something has happened to change his status. What is it? Well, last week we did read verses 3 and 4, but I did say at the time that I would reserve making a comment on those verses until this morning because they merit comment all on their own. Look up to verse 3, if you will. Verse 3 tells us that when Jesus died, that was God's condemnation on your sin and mine. Now, why did God do that? Verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. Now, by the way, the correct translation there is righteous requirement singular. If your Bible has got an S at the end of requirement, cross it out. Because God's law has got just one requirement, and that is righteousness. God's righteousness requires that all sin must be condemned and that only those who are truly righteous will inherit and enjoy the promises of Almighty God. That is why in verse 4, Paul talks about the great exchange that took place at the cross where Jesus took all of our guilt on himself and not only that, he gave us his perfect righteousness as a free gift. And that's why Paul says that the righteous requirement of God's holy law has been fully met in us. That is what guarantees our status of no condemnation. So no matter what we've done, God now looks at us as Christian people and sees us as perfectly righteous. Amen? Amen. But of course somebody will say, well that sounds absolutely marvellous, but how do I know it's actually true? How can I go on believing it, especially when I don't feel righteous, and when the world all around me is screaming at me not to believe it? Well, in our passage this morning, Paul's response to that question is to assure you that if you are a Christian, you really are a member of God's family. This is actually the second big truth that Paul wants you to be confident of in Romans chapter 8. If you are a Christian, God has adopted you. Your relationship with him has changed fundamentally 
and permanently. And how do you know that's true? Well, in our passage this morning, Paul says that your membership of God's family is confirmed by two specific ministries of God the Holy Spirit. And these things could not be generated in your life in any other way except by God himself. Now both of these uh, ministries are related closely to one another and together they are the proof that every Christian needs that we really have been adopted into God's family and that all of his promises are true for us. So what are these marvellous ministries? Well you'll see them in the outline there. And the first one is the leading of the Spirit in verse 14. In verse 14, Paul says, those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, I expect, I don't need to tell you, that uh, the leading of the Spirit is something that is frequently misunderstood today. So we often hear Christians talking about the leading of the Spirit in terms of detailed guidance concerning the personal circumstances of life. Now I don't want to deny for one moment that God does sometimes do that. But far too often the leading of the Spirit is kind of trotted out, isn't it, as a spiritual trump card to justify what is in reality a personal preference or decision. And whenever that happens, it always causes unhappiness and disunity. Uh, So a friend of mine told me of somebody in his church who had uh, approached another Christian and said to them, the Spirit has told me that you should marry Fred. Uh, To which the reply was, well thank you very much, but the Spirit hasn't told me And apparently, he hasn't told Fred either. Now friends, that is not how the Spirit leads. And I'm sure you can see how hurtful and divisive that kind of thing can be. More importantly, it isn't the kind of leading by the Spirit that Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 8. So what is Paul talking about? Well, notice, will you, at the beginning of verse 14, we find there is the word because. And that word is tying what Paul wants to say about the leading of the Spirit back into verse 13. That's the only complicated thing I'm going to say today, but uh, don't worry about it. So that word because is saying, focus with me on verse 13. And verse 13 says... For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So can you see, when we look back to verse 13, we see that the main thing that Paul wants us to know about the leading of the Holy Spirit isn't actually to do with personal guidance at all. It has to do with godliness. It's about the way the Spirit leads us to put to death 
the misdeeds of the body. In fact, uh, verse 13 in this chapter is uh, um, a key text on one of the most neglected and overlooked doctrines in the whole of the New Testament. It is the doctrine of mortification. Uh, Mortification is the word that uh, the Bible experts use to talk about our obligation as children of God to put to death, to kill off every thought, every word, every deed which puts me first and God second. That's actually what Paul means by that phrase, the misdeeds of the body. So he's not just talking about uh, overeating uh, or sexual sin. No, he's talking about every single thing that threatens to spoil my relationship with God and my relationship with other people. It's actually what Jesus was talking about when he said, if anyone wants to be my disciple, that is, if anyone wants to be a true Christian, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Now, I can't recall ever hearing a sermon on mortification. Can you? Mariano, have you ever heard one? No. And I suspect the reason is that it sounds uh, painful and it sounds negative. And we don't like anything negative in church on Sunday morning. It doesn't like the sort, sound like the sort of thing that's going to send us out of this building rejoicing, which is a great pity. Because Paul has chosen to talk about this in the middle of a chapter which is designed to do precisely that. So maybe we need to work just a bit harder at understanding why it matters and what it involves. So first of all, why does mortification matter? Well, Paul says, doesn't he, in verse 13, that if we actually do it, we will live. So that's our motivation. What he means is that it's only as we put to death the misdeeds of the body that we will experience a settled assurance in our hearts that we belong to God's family. And that it's only as we mortify the misdeeds of the body that we're actually going to look forward with confidence to being with Jesus in heaven when we die. So that is a very powerful incentive. And I want to suggest to you that if every Christian understood it and believed it, they would make mortification their top priority. But experience, of course, shows that it's not quite so simple. Because the sin in your life and in my life is far more dangerous and devious than we might think. Uh, John Owen was perhaps the greatest of the Puritan theologians of the 17th century. And he wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin. And his key text in that book was Romans chapter 8 verse 13. And there's a place in that book where he explains that sin never stands still. It grows, it spreads. So have a look with me please at the reverse of the pink question sheet. 
I've given you a quotation there from John Owen's book that I think puts it really rather well. He says, Every time sin rises up to tempt or entice, it aims to become the most extreme sin of its kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism. Sin sets its strength against every act of holiness and against every degree of spiritual growth. Let not man think he makes any progress in holiness who does not walk over the neck of his sins. He who does not kill sin in this way takes no steps towards his journey's end. Now do you see what he's saying there? He's saying that sin has got a power all of its own. And if we don't deal with it ruthlessly, then in no time at all, it will take over, rather like the weeds in your garden. And in the end, it will actually ruin your life. So you see, back in Romans chapter 8, verse 13, Paul says that if instead of killing your sin with the strongest spiritual weed killer you can possibly find, you persistently give in to it, and you live in accordance with your sinful nature, you will die. Meaning, not just that you will die physically, but that you will be cut off from the presence and the promises of Almighty God forever. Now, I have to admit that I've actually been puzzling over this this week because it seems so out of place, doesn't it, in a chapter where Paul is actually trying to build up the confidence of the Christian. Uh, People who were battling with all kinds of problems and pressures and who were sometimes wondering if they were actually real Christians at all. I mean, did they really need to hear this? But the more I've thought about it, the more I've realised that far from being negative, actually, Paul is being faithful and compassionate. Uh, About 20 years ago, uh, Christians all the way around the world were stunned by the sudden resignation of uh, one of its most, one of our most high-profile preachers and writers. He lived in England. He was the personal friend of some of the greatest Christians in our day, friend of Don Carson, Tim Keller, John Piper, and many other highly respected leaders. And then suddenly, out of the blue, he announced that he was quitting his job as the pastor of a very large student church, that he was leaving his wife and children, and that he was going to move in with his boyfriend. Now think about it. There was someone who had been a shining example of Christian life and ministry. And then suddenly he gives it all up. And ever since, he has been living an openly sinful life. Now I expect that all of us can think of similar examples. People you know who perhaps used to live 
used to be lively Christians, uh, but subsequently they've, they've turned away from God. And I think because in many cases we know these people personally, we do want to think that God will finish the work that he started. Um, so we say to ourselves, um, well, he was a Christian. So surely on the last day he will be saved. And maybe we take some comfort from that uh, text in 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about certain people who've lost their way spiritually being saved through the flames. And because we know that God is merciful, he's been merciful to us, then we want to believe that somehow it'll work out all right for these people in the end. But I think in verse 13 of our passage, Paul is warning us against offering any kind of false assurance. I think Paul is saying that to ask God that a person be saved even though he is living a sinful life is to ask that he be saved when he clearly is not saved. It's a complete contradiction. So friends, when we see our friends, people we love, persistently unbelieving, persistently going against the leading of the Holy Spirit, we must not make the mistake of offering them false hope, a false hope of God's mercy on the last day. I think that is actually the most unkind and most unloving thing we could possibly do. But having said that, I also want to be clear this morning that we're not here talking about our own personal daily failures. Because every child of God, me included, me especially, stumbles and falls all the time. That is normal Christian experience. We saw that in Romans 7. No, we're only here talking about the person who persistently refuses to say no to the sinful nature. And what Paul is saying is that that is a sign of being outside the family. It's a sign that a person is not a child of God. By contrast, the Holy Spirit always leads the children of God in the other direction. So let me pause there and ask you, have you experienced this leading of the Holy Spirit to deal drastically with those things within you that threaten to spoil your Christian life and your relationships? Have you experienced that? And when you have disobeyed the Spirit, have you actually felt grieved in your heart? Because, you see, if you know what it is to be miserable when you've disobeyed God, can I say to you, that's a good sign that you are a child of God. That's a good sign. You're part of the family. And that is why mortification matters. But having said that, what actually does mortification involve? Well, verse 13 tells us that it involves a partnership. Because verse 13 says, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. 
So you see, we are not passive in the process. It would be nice to think, wouldn't it, that God would do this for us while we were sound asleep at night. Paul doesn't say that. We have to do it, but we are not alone. We do it by the Spirit. In fact, we couldn't actually do it without him. But what does that look like in practice? Well, this is where Paul wants us to see the connection between the leading of the Spirit and our second heading this morning, which is the witness of the Spirit. And I'd like you now to please fix your eyes on verse 15. Paul says, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship or adoption. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies, that means bears witness, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So you see, the message of verses 15 and 16 is that a true Christian is somebody who has been given an internal awareness by the Holy Spirit that he or she has been adopted into God's family And that shows itself in a dramatic change in our attitude to God, in the way that we think about God. Now I want you to think about this with me for a moment. Because you see, for many religious people, their religion, their faith, their practice, feels to them rather like a form of slavery. And they're constantly plagued, aren't they, by doubts, and asking themselves questions like, you know, have I done enough? Am I good enough? Did I get it right? That kind of religion always thinks of God as a hard taskmaster. Now, I'm sure you'll remember that the Lord Jesus illustrates the danger of that kind of religion in a very persuasive parable. I'd like you, please, to keep a finger in Romans 8, And turn with me to Luke 15 on page 738. Luke chapter 15, page 738. And if uh, you're in the church Bible, we're going to the right-hand column, verse 28. Now while you're turning there, let me remind you that in the story, the story of the prodigal son... The Father represents God. And you will remember that the Father has two sons and that both of them are alienated from the Father for different reasons. And although the younger son makes a total mess of his life, he eventually comes to his senses and returns home. Now, in the section I want us to focus on this morning, the father throws a tremendous party to celebrate the return of the younger son. But then Jesus, very brilliantly, shines his spotlight onto the older brother and describes his reaction. So let's look at verse 28 and following. Jesus says, The older brother 
became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I should celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Now, think about it. What is his heart attitude to the father? Well, he's angry, clearly. He's frustrated. And he sees his service to the father not as a joy, but as a form of slavery. In his mind, the father is a hard taskmaster. And he simply can't bear the thought that his obedience might not be enough to earn the Father's blessing. Now friends, the point is that there are so many people in churches today who think about God in precisely those terms. They are totally preoccupied with their own performance. You know, there they are slaving away, trying to make themselves good enough for God, hoping that they've done enough. But back in Romans uh, chapter 8, Paul says that true Christian experience is nothing of the kind. Because if we are Christians, we have not received a spirit that makes us a slave again to fear or to anger or to frustration about whether we're going to be accepted. No, true Christianity is exactly the opposite. Because verse 15 says, we have received a spirit of sonship. And verse 16 says, that instead of being slaves, what are we? Children. The great reformer John Calvin said that the spirit of sonship is the most important title of God the Holy Spirit because it brings together all the other titles that are given to him. His most important ministry is to help you understand what it means for God to be your father. That is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And it means that you can approach the creator of the entire universe in the same way that a small child would approach his dad in the language of intimacy and absolute confidence. Uh, When John Kennedy was President of the United States, uh, somebody took a rather marvellous photograph of him sitting at his desk in the Oval Office working through some papers. And underneath the desk was his young son, who was aged about five, I think, at the time. And there he is on the floor, playing with his toys. Now, the Oval Office is one of the most closely protected rooms in the whole world. Nobody ever gets to just wander in for a chat whenever they feel like it. No matter how important they are, they actually have to make an appointment. Certainly days, possibly weeks, possibly months in advance. But the president's son gets to come in and uh, sit under his desk and just play on the floor. Uh, To everybody else, JFK was the president. 
But to this little boy, he was my dad. And I think that's a rather lovely image, isn't it? Of access and familiarity between a child and the most powerful man in the world. And that is the kind of access that every true Christian has to Almighty God. Yes, he is the creator of the whole universe. He's in sovereign control of absolutely everything, but he is also our Father. And when you and I cry out, Abba, Father, he's listening. He's listening. A few years ago, uh, Dr. J.I. Packer wrote an excellent book called Knowing God. And in it he said this, he said, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's heavenly Father. So my question for you this morning is, do you think about God like that? Is he your heavenly Father? I do hope that he is, because I want to say to you that your salvation actually depends upon it. Why do I say that? Well, I said at the beginning that these two ministries of the Holy Spirit are very closely related. Because on the one hand, the Holy Spirit leads me to put to death the old way of life, with me in the middle and everybody else second. But on the other hand, he also leads me to cry out urgently to my Heavenly Father. And here's the point. The point is that if I won't cry out to the Father, I will definitely go on giving in to the sinful nature. Do you see how those two things are connected? And if I do that, in the end the results will be disastrous. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the powerful work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. By nature we are self-centred, always looking for new ways to put ourselves first and you second. Forgive us, Father. Thank you that by your Spirit, you give us the ability to say no to self and yes to righteousness. We couldn't do it without your Spirit. And thank you that your Spirit constantly reminds us that we are your dearly loved children. That you are always ready to hear our prayers. That you delight to hear our prayers. And so, in the many moments of testing and temptation, help us, Father, to run to you and ask for the strength we need to walk over the neck of all our sin. And all God's people said, Amen.